Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's not an overstatement to say that democracy in the U.S., U.K., and elsewhere is going through a crisis. Corruption of the process by money, mindless partisanship, and factionalism have led to citizen disengagement and despair. What can be done? Forty years ago, an Oxford academic, Morris Pope, accurately foresaw this crisis coming and wrote a book analyzing its causes and proposing a solution. Pope was not a political scientist or sociologist. He was a professor of classical studies, and he drew on his knowledge of ancient Athenian democratic processes for his suggestion, sortition, citizens selected by lot to make decisions on how the society will be governed. Pope's book was rejected by publishers, and he put the manuscript away and got on with his academic research, trying to translate the ancient Minoan language, Linear A. Morris Pope lived a long life, and when he passed away at the age of 93, in 2019, his widow came across the manuscript while organizing his books and papers, and shared the discovery with his son, Hugh. With Democracy in Crisis, the book now found a publisher, and The Keys to Democracy has recently been published. I spoke with Hugh Pope about the book, and you'll hear that conversation in a minute. But first, a reminder, FRDH Podcast is totally self-funded. Please visit the website, goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation so I can keep the podcasts coming. Now, Hugh Pope was for many years a distinguished foreign correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, based in Turkey and covering the wider Middle East, before heading to Brussels to work for the International Crisis Group. And we do get around to talking about the recent election in Turkey, but I began our conversation by asking, just what is sortition? Sortition basically just means random selection, but it's come to mean a whole lot of things to democratic reformers, people who want to change the political system as we have it, who think that we've run into a dead end after 250 years of election-based democracy, as it's now called, but was never called in the past. And before the mid-18th century, uh, all democracy was sortition, and sortition meant literally choosing by lot or choosing randomly. Uh, but nowadays, when you say sortition, there's a kind of assumption you're saying sortition and deliberation, as in a citizen's jury, a citizen's assembly, a citizen's panel. And there is a kind of bundle of random selection from all members of a community who get together, meet over a period of time, usually broken into three stages, one in which the participants inform themselves through expert briefings or reading second stage in which they deliberate, usually with facilitation, uh, very important to make sure that the quiet people are encouraged to speak and that everyone has their turn. And then they move to a policy recommendation stage. And there you get either a decision or a series of recommendations or the text for a referendum sometimes, depending on how the sortition-based assembly has been set up. Hmm. Well, we'll come back to that. But what, I, what I'm really curious to talk about is the origins of this particular book, the one your father wrote, because reading it, leaving aside whether sortition can solve the problems of democracy, as currently practiced in the Anglosphere and elsewhere, 
I wondered at its extraordinary prescience. He wrote this book around 40 years ago, but his critique of what's gone wrong in the democratic process is, I think, exceptionally apt. Well, prescience is always relative, isn't it? I think that what it came from for my father, and you know, to be fair, people have written books supporting the idea of sortition over the centuries, but they've always been fairly uh, in, much in the shadows. What struck him was that there had been a lack of innovation or a lack of rethinking of what the basics of democracy were and an assumption that everything that Plato said was right, that we had grown up in a society where in science, the, the assumptions of the ancients had all been challenged, but in the humanities, they had not. And we had assumed that this elite-based idea that Plato defended, who Plato hated democracy, especially the sortition-based one, viewed it as mob rule, um, needed to be re-examined. And he, I, I actually recently found a, a, an essay he wrote in the 1950s, which takes issue with the, the Plato-based uh, assumptions of uh, of the um, teaching profession. And he then wrote, he, he, I, I can sense that he's coming towards a, a an idea about sortition as a viable project for the future in his book on the ancient Greeks in the 1970s called The Ancient Greeks, How They Lived and Works. And he has a wonderful chapter on how they organized themselves. And he makes a very clear presentation of how well sortition worked and he says that he, uh, the way he's putting it, he's defending it against the critics of the Athenian system. In the 1980s, he, he has an academic article published in which uh, he defends Thucydides on democracy. Thucydides is often thought to, to, to favor the oligarchs, but my father's essay shows very clearly that Thucydides actually doesn't distinguish between oligarchs and democrats. In particular, he is basically anti autocrat, anti-tyrant, and basically the Persian type of one-man rule as, as it was then. And he is very concerned to highlight the number of times that Thucydides makes clear that he believes that the citizens, as ordinary people, were perfectly able to make even strategic decisions of war and peace, and that the groups of people in there are about a thousand Greek city-states, and Thucydides makes clear that these these groups, whether oligarchs or democrats, that, that group thinking was more powerful than single-person thinking. And of course, as we know, Aristotle is very much in favor of the idea of if you want to know what an ordinary person is good for, it's the judgment. It's doesn't necessarily have the expertise, but is able to make a clear judgment. I think that at the bottom, what inspired my father was this to resurface the pro-democracy school that had been suppressed for all these years. Suppressed, well, if we're going back to ancient Greece, it was suppressed a very, very long time. He's not a bad stylist, your dad. Not a bad writer at all. I, I, there's this one line, I marked, I marked it off as soon as I saw it. He's talking about the British Parliament which styles itself the mother of parliaments. So he writes, the mother of parliaments in England was not the daughter of democracy. <laughs> I thought this was pretty good because, you know, British democracy and its later offshoot 
did come out of monarchy. And what whatever rights, such as they are, the people gained, were gained very slowly and over a period of centuries. How would he, and I'm asking you to ventriloquize for him, how would he define democracy? For him, the only form, correct definition of democracy is randomly selected groups of people. But uh, as, as a classicist, as a classicist, well, yes. Because well, we, you know, we're this, roughly the same age. I think I'm a little older, but we're roughly the same age. So we we were indoctrinated in a way about democracy means going to the polls and having a vote, having the franchise. Well, having been brought up by him, I'm afraid I've never voted. <laughs> I never saw the point. I was indoctrinated otherwise. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I'm I'm innocent of that feeling. In fact, I, it's not quite true. I had to vote in, in a municipal election here in Belgium as a Belgian citizen now. And uh, I actually got very overwhelmed at the, at the, at the uh, ballot box site because I'm a former journalist like yourself. And uh, I couldn't bring myself to decide between these names. I mean, I should, if it was important for me to make this decision, I should surely know much more. It would require days of research to find out who on earth I was voting for. And I ended up just voting for the tyrant, our, our dear mayor, who's not a bad person, but uh, <laughs> I, just, I gave up with the with, with the effort. But um, yeah, obviously he, he thinks democracy is obviously the people power in its Greek root. I think, you know, the first, section of his book is all is all about definitions, which I think he, he believes is a live battle because his principal worry, even in the 1980s, was his belief that the way that the election system had appropriated the sobriquet democracy was endangering democracy itself, or in the sense, the wider sense of, you know, people power or the people's access to power, because as people saw that the system which they're calling democracy, but it's in fact an electoral system, is failing to deliver. It is the property of an elite class. It, it's highly vulnerable to nepotism and corruption. You need money to win. You need party backing to win. It's naturally going to be factional. That as people became fed up with this, they would then think that, oh, well, if this is democracy, it's no good. I'm going to get a strong person a strong man to sort this all out and give me good government and discipline and forgetting all notions of equality and justice that um that we associate with the more popular varieties of uh, of democracy and he set things on a very interesting series of spectrums in the book and one of them being the the spectrum from tyranny through oligarchy to full sortition based democracy where you have power cut up into uh, as many little bits as there are members of the of the community. And most people think, if you think that democracy ends with elections, it ends halfway through the scale. And he wanted to break that conception and allow people to think of democracy as a much broader-based thing. While knowing, of course, I mean, he's a very radical book. He wants, his advocacy is for the complete takeover of government in its legislature, its executive, and its judiciary by sortition-based panels, assemblies, juries, and so forth. However, he does allow that this will take a very long time, given that it's taken us 200 years to get to universal suffrage. And before then, until 
you know, the parliament only became the center of decision, political decision-making power after three or 400 years of its own existence. So the ancientness of, of the system implies that any innovation or renovation of it is also going to take quite a bit of time because you, you don't want revolution. I mean, that, that, that destroys everything. You want an evolution to a, a more a more broad-based system. And in fact, I think that's happening. I mean, the last 10 years have seen an explosion in the number of citizens' assemblies, randomly based groups that have come together with sometimes with remarkable success to solve wicked problems that politicians couldn't solve. For example? The, the poster child for the sortition movement is the Irish pair of uh, citizens' assemblies that got around their politicians' inability to legislate for abortion and for same-sex marriage. It turned out that the people were more willing to change than the politicians. Tell us more, because I'm not sure everyone who listens to this will know the full story there. Okay. Well, let's start at the beginning. You know, what hap- How does this work? What happens is you, you get a letter, you get a phone call inviting you as a result of a random selection process to participate. And if you accept, then you will be summoned for a certain amount of time, usually a few weekends, sometimes nine weekends, sometimes one, sometimes one and a half hours in America, where you do everything so quickly. Um, and uh, you you say yes or no. Well, if you say yes, then you are put into a new random selection because, it, because it's not mandatory. And uh, certainly for this to work properly, it would need to be as mandatory, at least as jury service, possibly more so, uh, because it's not mandatory. And in order to get a full reflection of all the sections of population in the community, in the community, there's a secondary stratification, which uh, makes sure that you have enough people from every education group, age group. Uh, some people, you know, gender is also one that they split 50-50. Purists say that that's not necessary because random selection will naturally produce the full uh, spectrum of gender preferences in the population. And plus the, the binary man-woman thing is no longer what people think is right. Uh, anyway, so you you get between six and eight different parameters, and then you turn up. But when you turn up, you are supported completely. You are in charge as the citizen. You will get pay, child support, IT support, and all kinds of other support, which will allow you to devote yourself fully and to feel fully empowered to represent only yourself, your own conscience. You are not there representing women, men, uh, an ethnic group. You are there just as yourself. And it hasn't... Is that what happened in Ireland? Not quite. One of the assemblies in Ireland was an interesting experiment in which they had one third were politicians and two thirds were ordinary citizens. The second one was uh, 99 citizens and one appointed chairperson. But both worked well. The first one was with uh, with the politicians and it was a good idea because it showed the politicians how this could work. And to be honest with you, all citizens' assemblies in their current stage are experiments because it's so new that people change things all but, the time. But, so, so they met and they discussed abortion. They and discussed, then what happened? It went to referendum. But it was a very open process. People were able to follow it. And the politicians were able to see that the that public opinion had opened the way for them. It basically was like a bulldozer clearing a path through the the jungle of assumptions about what the Irish people actually wanted. 
so they they reported out from this meet from this absolutely the, uh, a a a what a, a the question for the referendum or a call for a referendum the whole framework of what happened was set by the um by, by the citizens assembly and of course supported by by legal writers and things i mean the, you 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 can summon on all the back office help that you get as a politician as well i mean it's uh, it, it, you're not left alone to to struggle with all the technicalities yeah as an american i go back to one of the myths we get taught at school of you know yeoman farmers meeting at either at the church or in some assembly hall overlooking the green in whatever town in new england and hashing through the town's business what's you know various things that needed to be done whether it was setting up provisional defense against threats which were around in the 18th century or you know organizing i suppose flood defense because rivers run fast at certain times of the year or providing for the education of the local children and so it seems like there was sort of that already at work at least in america but i'm very curious to know how this sort of thing can evolve into a better process than the endless chasing after money by people who want to be elected the beholdenness of them to the people who provide the big money and then the elevation of them away from actually ordinary people once they are elected to parliament or congress it can only happen by steps of course and uh, who knows how it will work in america some people think that america is 15 years behind the west rest of the world or at least europe on the question of uh, of embracing citizens assemblies there've been very few in the united states but here in Brussels, for instance, which is actually quite a hotbed of sortition, we had one week recent weekend. I thought there were four citizens' assemblies in progress, but each one is different. Each one is trying to trying a different experiment uh, in how the evolution can happen. For instance, the French-speaking Parliament of Brussels, which is a small organization, Belgium being split up into three different regions, and one of them being Brussels, and part of it being the French-speaking part of Brussels. The president of it said, listen, we, we're not debating in parliament anymore. People are not turning out to vote for us. Or if they vote, they're voting with blank ballots because we have lost touch with the population. We need to re-engage with citizens. And so she brought in randomly selected citizens into the committee stage of parliament to try and reignite debate on, on topics and to, uh, to, to remove the stranglehold of parties on all political business, because everything being decided by party programs and part coalition protocols and things means that you actually don't discuss anything. You you do things, everything by, by back rooms. And so in this case, it was a politician who, who saw a threat to politics in general in the Brussels region and decided to take action. Another example is President Macron in France. He had a very difficult situation in 2018-19 with the, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement, which was almost an anarchic uprising of the provinces who felt completely unheard because, you know, it's all very well slapping taxes on petrol. But if you 
have to drive 50 kilometers a day. It's not funny at all. And uh, it was the urban person hadn't understood this. And so Macron had a huge and unmanageable problem. He had to, he had to get ahead of it. And he, he actually, according to the person who spoke to him here, a, a, a great saint in the pantheon of sortition activist David von Raybrook once told me that he met Macron at an earlier stage in Macron's career and explained to him the benefits of using sortition to solve problems. And Macron started taking notes on his table napkin or whatever he had. And when he faced the Gilets jaunes uprising, he decided he would open up to the idea of sortition. So the, the grand national debate was partly randomly selected assemblies. And then he did a big one. He did a climate assembly in 2019, which was to discuss how France would reach its climate goals. And this is obviously a huge subject for 150 people. And it, it was very difficult. It had a lot of problems. But still, they came up with 149 actionable ideas, which Macron had said he would enact sans filtre, without a filter. But at that point, the system reared up and said the, the, the parliamentarians suddenly saw their prerogatives being taken away. And also some of them were pretty radical. So Ma Macron didn't do it all immediately. But if you look at the impact that the discussions had in French uh, lawmaking, as someone who's currently trying to sell a house in France for their mother, I can tell you there have been changes into what you have to do for the climate that are, seem to be directly inherited from the, the kind of thinking that went into that citizens' assembly. So even though it said that only 10% of the recommendations of that particular particular assembly were legislated, the long there's been a much longer tail. And then even though that one had its problems, it uh, it, it was it, it was controversial for various reasons that, that go beyond sortition, Macron decided that he'd try it again with the end of life as you know the question of assisted dying. And I actually observed that uh, that con that uh, citizens assembly uh, from beginning to end and it was astonishing first of all how the model had developed what state backing can do to make such a thing really well organized and above all when they had these 184 ordinary citizens had come in become experts on assisted dying come to an extraordinary 75% of them agreed that assisted that France should allow assisted dying, 25% against. That in itself is not the kind of majoritarianism that we've unfortunately got used to having to to to, to put up with, with the sort of 5248s on Scottish independence, on Brexit, on on whatever. 75% thought one route was good. But what I love best was that the 25% who were against lifting the ban on assisted dying. Most of them signed off on the final report and even went on television to defend the final report as it was, even though they were against assisted dying personally. Extraordinary. And Macron, you're talking about how it can move forward. Macron actually embraced them. He met them all the next day, spent uh, two or three hours with them. And uh, he actually promised that he would make their recommendations you put them through the Senate and Assembly Nationale in the summer, and uh, that there would be new citizens' assemblies on other topics. We are thinking it's going to be immigration. Uh, but sensitive things, things that are very difficult for politicians to, to solve. And with each one that happens, more people hear about it. It becomes more legitimate. It's, it's, it's difficult for people to accept.
Five minutes ago, I, I haven't interrupted you because it's fascinating. About five minutes ago, you, you did mention something about support. And, and I think that if you take this idea that you could, I'm not sure if bypass is the right word, but if you take an issue like assisted dying, which is a, which is a controversial issue for many people, cuts across religious belief. And if you take it essentially out of the hands of parliamentarians who probably wouldn't touch it with a barge pole unless they absolutely had to, you know, because where's the percentage for them, you know, in taking on the Catholic Church in France, for example, there is no percentage. But you cleverly give it to this citizens group selected by lot to discuss what would be a way forward in the 21st century, um, where it is an issue again, because people because medicine allows people to have extraordinary measures to prolong life. Okay, so you take random a random group, but how do you give them, teach them, actually, what it, the information that will allow them to make a reasonable decision for themselves? Same, I mean, I suppose the same thing would have been true of the abortion debate in Ireland, which, again cuts across religious questions. You bring people in. And uh, what happens that, so how do they educate themselves? It's actually a beautiful thing to observe because I think people who've been on jury service, Martin Wolf in his recent FT article said that being on jury service is what opened his mind to the sensible approaches of the ordinary person. And I think it was the same for my father when he wrote his uh, book was shortly after he'd been twice called to jury service, and he came back astonished at how sensible ordinary people were, and also how um, uh, how dubious the police force was. <laughs> but um, the, the to to watch the the informing process is extraordinary. So on the first day at this French assembly, for instance, everyone arrives very diffident. I have been chosen, but why? You know, I know nothing about uh, assisted dying, and I'm going to be expected to say something about it. So a lot of people stayed very quiet, and the usual characters who know everything anyway would speak up. And gradually, they got informed, first of all, by extraordinarily well-written briefing papers, which a large majority, I would say, of the participants from all over France, of all educational standards, read. In America, they have a system in, I think it's the University of Pittsburgh, which organizes randomly selected groups for the Congress people. And that what they do is they set a standard of grade nine as being you know, the understanding level. And I think this was a little bit more sophisticated than that, but still it was very comprehensive and very fairly written. And then they started bringing experts by the end of the process, they had listened to 60 experts of all types, all religions, all philosophies, doctors, nurses, people whose job it is to go up, to turn up in the morning to a Swiss house, a house in Switzerland, and help a family let their dear one go. Can you imagine that being your day job? I don't know. And, and these people explaining what it was like. And I myself know nothing about assisted dying, but after a while, I noticed that my opinion, my my opinions were changed. I had assumed, yes, of course, people can should be allowed to die, but after hearing some of 
what the carers said about why people do it and why very often the reason that people want the assisted suicide is because they feel they're a burden, that they're using up all the family funds, that they are not valued and they're not loved. And this was a, a revelation to me. I'd never even thought of that. I had, I had uh, assumed that it was um, just a natural thing that if you felt you were going to die anyway, you might as well get it over and done with. But that they made different cases and you could see everyone adjusting their opinions. And also the key element is that obviously these, these experts would brief the assembly in groups of 30, 60, or even the full 184 in a plenary. But the messages would be discussed in breakout groups of 10. And these were the most important place where things would happen. And there, the very high quality facilitation was very important to make sure that everyone saw what everyone else was thinking. And so people developed not a popular will, but there was a sense of the convention that developed as a result. And people, they did have opinion groups. People thought differently, but they also understood that none of these groups were homogenous. For instance, the people in the 25% who didn't want assisted dying, which included perhaps more than 25% at some levels, were people who uh, were Muslims, Jews, Roman Catholics, Protestants, but of a certain type of each one of those groups. And you could see that there was no reason to say that there were the, any one group was the majority. It was There was a, a very strong sense of uh, consensus. Consensus not being that everyone has to think exactly the same thing, but that we can find a, a common path. And it was truly inspiring to watch. And that when they were wrapping up, this emotional element was picked up by so many of the, the, the participants in their closing statements. And some of them said it was the best period of their lives. Because well, they had know, this, written... it, it, it's it's interesting. Well, anything new, it's like jury duty but for legislation. You get you get the letter in the mail and you think, mm -hmm. oh God, I no, I can't report next week. I've got, you know, I've got a business trip and it's really important. But I was also thinking that it seems a program for constant re-engagement and taking responsibility for yourself as a citizen. The democracy we have now in Anglo-America is I'll vote for my party, mostly out of habit, even though I, I find... Labor or the Democrats speaking personally, you know, don't represent me much at all. But, you know, it's, it's a habit of a lifetime. And this is a, a way of re-engaging people by giving them a certain responsibility to frame questions that otherwise, I mean, I remember making a documentary for the World Service about the passage of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. And yes, there were plenty of citizens, but it was, you know, it's all organized. You know, the nurses union shows up, television cameras show up, they bring pressure, a spokesperson gives testimony. And it's all, you know, everybody's pay, being, I mean, they're all being paid. You know, there are jobs, you know, you, you work for the union and you're the person they send to the, to Congress to testify on how you want the legislation to go, but it isn't actual participation by people at all. My my father's book, 
predicts that if you did it at all levels of of government, which you ultimately, uh, as I suppose as a book of philosophy, you are, you have to take it through to the logical conclusion. He thinks that about a week of our lives a, w- a year as a citizen would be spent doing this. And it wouldn't quite, I think, be like your, um, you know, gosh, next week I have a business trip. I think you would know much further in advance. Plus, you would be properly paid and your employer would be obliged to um, make make space for it. My father has two versions, we, you know, for the, the main executive functions. He thinks that maybe it would take a month in one version. And in another version, he gives it a year, which I think would be difficult. Because one of the strange things about the Citizens' Assembly phenomenon is that uh, what makes it buzz, what makes the atmosphere so special, is that people are genuinely experiencing a sense of civic duty. But the moment it becomes professionalized, the moment it becomes a job, the moment it has hierarchies or people or officers are selected or elected, things change, factions emerge, and uh, the secret will be to find the sweet spot of what can people manage to carry on being, what period of time can people manage to keep being polite and civic-minded for? Hmm. Who sorts the sorticianer, the, the person who is in charge? I mean, there there is someone who, who sort of is a convener. I mean, who sorts that person? How is that person appointed? Is that person? This is an excellent this is an excellent question. I and mean, obviously, in the case of France, in this case, it was the president who decided that the full state should get behind it. But when people have enough people have heard of citizens' assemblies. Once it becomes uh, an established thing that countries do, one assumes that the state will be the convener. All right. Well, I want to thank you for explaining all that. But Hugh, since I've got you, I'm going to change the subject a little bit and ask you about the Turkish election. <laughs> since you, you were based there forever, for the Wall Street Journal and then later for Crisis Group. And I believe you have property there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think people outside of Turkey were sort of hoping that there would be change, but clearly there was no appetite for it. Were you surprised? Well, we've known for years that the country is split down the middle on the question of uh, of the of President Erdogan. And uh, I... 5248. Yeah, even if it had been 5248 the other way, you know, you'd have still had half the population who was uh, uh, on the other side. And that is something that is a cause of despair. In my local town, as you say, I have a house there, a sort of home from home in the mountains uh, and really agricultural area. And I, I was there for the elections and I was going around, was rebuilding my roof. So I was meeting all kinds of people, buying supplies and things. And basically, this is a despair. You know, we, is is nothing going to fix this, this, this system? I mean, they know that it's not right that uh, one person dominate everything, even though they've only got half the vote. And yet, the fact is that that person is the best organized person. And the opposition fought honorably, nobly to get the result they did, despite all the obstacles. You know, one uh, correspondent said that it was like they fought with a ball and chain. It's true. But at the same time, the moment that they didn't win the first round like they'd been hoping for, like many people outside 
Turkey had been hoping. They gave up. It was sort of like, oh, it's sort of this huge deflation. And it was like, again, it was so familiar, the pattern, you know, sort of this, this opposition which is never quite ready to pick up the mantle of actually being an electable force. Right? However decent and noble they are, and however oppressive and authoritarian the other side may be, you get the impression that since so many, so few people changed the way they vote, that the Turkish people can be said to have voted for this, for uh, the status quo. But God knows it's not going to be easy now. I mean, they, the the treasury is empty. Inflation is set to skyrocket again, and the, the these wars they make. They're not easy. You know, the Syrian war next to them, which has kind of calmed down, I guess, but they still have 3 million Syrian refugees. They've got the, the turmoil between Russia and Ukraine is, is terrible. And you had the earthquake. And it's such a almost sort of predictable that every couple of years there will be some great shock and prevent you from picking up and, and really making a life of things. Because, yes, in the 2000s, Erdogan did manage to preside over a huge expansion of GDP per capita and general sense of prosperity. What people forget was that everything that happened in the 2000s had been set up for Erdogan by the previous government, had got the potential membership of the European Union, had rebased the currency, had got everything sorted out, and then started arguing with themselves so stupidly that in 2002, the AK party, with only about a third of the vote, was allowed to, was able to seize power. But to be fair to Erdogan, he presided over this, this this expansion. But when the financial crisis hit the world in two thousand and eight, Turkey was unable to deal with it. Since then, GDP per capita has stayed roughly the same. It, it did go up a bit in two thousand and thirteen, but for ten years, GDP per capita has been going down. And to be honest with you, I'm still paying the work people. In, that helped me build my roof, the same as I was paying in the 1980s per day, in that, in absolute dollar terms. And then, so people do feel that they're stuck in a rut and wish that they could do. And I have to say that I couldn't help myself. When I was talking to everyone, I would say, yes, this is what elections bring you. Now listen to my new system. And... In Turkey, they all understood exactly how great that could be, that a sortition-based system that would really find what most people want and most people could agree on, despite their political differences, they, they were delighted with that idea because they could recognize that most people want stability, predictability, enforced contracts, schools that work, hospitals that are open. And to do that, you, can, you don't need politics. You need decision-making mechanisms, but you definitely do not need the current kind of party politics where everything that one side does is black and everything the other side does is white. It doesn't work like that. I, I wonder, I'm going to think hard whether, given the current state of partisan divide in America, whether this might be the way around it. When, when you speak of, yes, I mean, people do want schools that work and they do want a hospital that they can afford to go to if they or someone they love is sick. But and, and politics is not delivering this at all. 
And maybe the, you have to move, I mean, legislative politics needs to move beyond that. Hmm. Yeah. And there's all kinds of different places that randomization could work. People are talking about it, aren't they? In the United States for the selection of Supreme Court justices, for instance, you know, mm. th that kind of system where you have a, a qualified group and then you select from it, that kind of sortition was very common in the Middle Ages in Europe and worked very well. Venice, Florence, many Spanish cities, German cities, not the kind of sortition that someone like my father or I am trying to, to push for, but definitely preferable to systems which put people in indefinitely who are representing just one group. Well, Hugh, thank you very much. I'm going to think about this and um, urge people to read The Keys to Democracy. Excellent. I, I promise it's an easy and accessible read, and it will change the way you see the potential for how we can fix things in a, in a, in a much more satisfactory way than these dead-end discussions of which politicians should we choose when it's not about the politicians, it's about the system. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. The book, once again, is The Keys to Democracy by Morris Pope. My thanks again to Hugh Pope for making time and to you for listening. And please remember to visit the website goldfarbpod.com Make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.